0: Good morning, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to the Vineyard. Uh, Welcome to the fourth and final week of our Advent series, The Incarnation. Um, We have been focusing on this idea of the Incarnation to kind of mark the season of Advent in the church calendar. It's a crucial idea. And if you don't know what I'm talking about when I say the Incarnation, uh, you will by the time we're done. It's well known the world over that Jesus was born in a town called Bethlehem. Are we all familiar with that idea? Um, What's lesser known is the true significance uh, that this fact really bears on the whole story of the Bible and ultimately the story of your life and mine. Every aspect of the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus has an immense amount of meaning packed into every single little detail of, of what happens along the way. And so before the village was known as Bethlehem, which means house of bread in Hebrew, uh, it was called Ephrathah. Ephrathah. And Ephrathah means ash heap in Hebrew. It was, it was in Ephrathah that Rachel... Jacob's beloved wife died in childbirth and was buried. So when we read through the Old Testament, we read the stories of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob's wife, Rachel, died in childbirth and was buried at Ephrathah. And that's why it was named Ash Heap, because it was, a, it was a place of mourning. It was actually a place of horrible sadness. And today, um, even this, this day, a marker can be found outside the city of Bethlehem to uh, to memorialize, to commemorate the traditional location of the tomb of Rachel. And I want to suggest that there's a hint of the gospel in this, that the ash heap of sorrow and loss becomes the place where the bread of life is born. And if you think about it, our our lives are a little bit like that, aren't they? We all have our ash heaps, whether it's You know, sorrow and sadness and loss, or, uh, you know, just the the holiday season brings up painful memories or painful thoughts. It could be, you know, the loss of a loved one in the last year, unfulfilled dreams, sickness, you know, whatever it may be. um, I think it's important to acknowledge that that's part of our experience of life, right? Is that there are some, some ash heaps along the way. But God is in the business of transformation. He's in the business of making all things new. And that's the promise that we, we receive from the big story of the scriptures. And, and so, you know, as we read through the, the Bible as a whole, as a whole narrative from beginning to end, what we see is that God is redeeming things and he's making them new. And so this little town of Bethlehem is just a hint of that, that whole arc of the scripture of God making all things new. You know, the ancient church of the nativity is what this this giant building is called. It's in Bethlehem now. And, and it opened in the year 333 A.D. We've got a picture of it, I think. And it's the oldest site in the world consistently used as a Christian place of worship. Isn't that interesting? 333 A.D. Just let that sink in for a minute. So, you know, like... 2,000 years ago, almost 2,000 years ago, some some early monks built this building, and today it still stands, and it's the longest-standing house of worship in the world, in the place where Jesus was born. Isn't that fascinating? And just a few miles away from the Church of the Nativity, tear gas and rubber bullets and separation walls dominate the landscape because Bethlehem sits in the West Bank. We have a little map, a little geography lesson. Bethlehem sits in the West Bank, which is this hotly contested area um, on the border of Israel and, and Palestine, and there's violent conflict. And so today, Bethlehem, the place, the birthplace of God himself, the central location of God's most powerful intervention in human history lies at the intersection of iconic beauty and painful reality. The church of the nativity, and a few blocks away, violent conflict. And that's really what I want to talk about to kind of conclude our year. Um, You know, Jesus is not just born in the beautiful places in our lives, like we live in some far-flung fantasy land, Jesus is born in the war-torn places of our lives and of our hearts. And that's a hopeful thought. That's a hopeful thought, because if Jesus was only born in the places that are full of joy, like we talked about this morning, then I think our joy would be incomplete. Because we wouldn't have a way to think about joy in the midst of sorrow. We wouldn't have a way to think about joy in the midst of loss. But when we talk about joy in the Advent season, it's not, it's not an empty, paper-thin kind of joy where we just paste a smile on our face and pretend like everything's okay. It's real joy that comes from the depths of our souls that's given to us as a gift by the creator of the universe because he's born into the intersection of pain and promise. That little Christmas hymn that we might know, Little Town of Bethlehem, what does it say? The hopes and fears of all the years are found in thee tonight. That's what that hymn is talking about. Whoever wrote that knew this stuff. So this being the last sermon that you'll hear in this room in 2022, I want to uh, kind of put a bow on our Advent series, but I also want to look forward to some of the things that uh, we're starting to think that God might be up to in our, in our city, in our church, and in our lives in 2023, because it's really exciting. I'm gonna be honest with you, I'm really excited about it. And I think that we're gonna see a little bit in the coming years, some of that, that pain and that promise brought to fruition because the last several years have been painful, right? We dealt with the pandemic, we dealt with division, we dealt with conflict, even in our community. But in the coming years, I think God has some massive promises for us related to um, really his goodness and just how he wants to call people to himself and how he wants to form this community into the kind of community that's, that's really powerfully calling people to Jesus uh, in our city. So at the beginning of the Advent series, just to kind of recap a little bit, Josh talked about how Advent is important to the whole story of the Scriptures. He kind of painted this broad picture for us, Uh, From Genesis to Revelation and how Jesus coming as a man is really relevant to the whole story of the Bible. It's like the most important thing that that makes this whole faith thing work, that God decided to come to earth as a human being. And then in the second week of our series, uh, Debbie shared a little bit about how significant it is that God became a man and how that powerfully intersects our lives as he enters into our struggles and our difficult situations. And last week, John shed some light on what the birth of Jesus means about our identity as followers of him. That actually, God coming as a man reveals almost as much about us as it does about God's character. And so we called this series the Incarnation because this is the central idea of the Advent series. God becomes a human being and dwells among us. And Christ was and is 100% man and 100% God. And the greatest thing about that statement, in my mind, is that it completely defies all of our categories that we could place it in. It defies logic. It defies reason. It defies our measurement devices. It, def- it defies all of the, the peer-reviewed research that's ever been done because it's, it's one of the most radically powerful spiritual ideas but it's also one of the most radically powerful realities that we will ever encounter. And 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 really it's wa- it's one of the reasons that Paul talks about the foolishness of the cross because the foolishness of the cross is more than just Jesus dying on the cross. It's this idea that the whole project is foolish from beginning to end if we look at the life of Jesus, you know, God becoming a human person in submission to sinful humanity. And, and by doing so, redeeming humanity from the inside out? That's not the way we think about leadership, is it? That's not the way that we think about fixing situations. We think about fixing them uh, from the outside, reaching in from the outside and making some powerful uh, act or some powerful demonstration or declaration, but God stoops low and gets on our level and fixes it from the inside out. How cool is that? And so... As Jesus was God incarnate, this is really what I want to talk about today. The church is now the incarnation of Christ. So let me break that down for a minute and just explain what I mean by that. God comes as a man in Jesus. He lives his life. He dies. He's raised from the dead, and he ascends to the Father. And when he ascends to the Father, he commissions the church to do his work on the earth. And when I read the New Testament, I hear Paul referring to the church as the body of Christ. Do you guys remember that part? (laughs) I'm just, I'm getting a lot of blank stares. Do you guys remember that part when he calls it the body of Christ kind of over and over and over again? Okay, so he calls it the body of Christ on purpose because there's a pattern that's happening here. So God comes to intervene, and he takes on a body, Jesus, the man. And then Jesus, in his body, which, by the way, just a little, we just should be clear on this. Jesus is still in a, in a body. He has a physical body. It's a resurrected body, but he's seated in heaven at the right hand of the Father. He's not a, a disembodied spirit. He's not, like, floating around in the ether. He's still Jesus. He's actually, he has a, a body. And then Jesus returns to the Father, but then the activity of God is still in the earth through a body, you and I and, and, our, and our Christian brothers and sisters, our friends, right? And so the final piece of this Advent series, the incarnation, really is to understand how we, the church, the body of Christ, are Jesus incarnate in our community, and so we want to connect those dots all the way through today. And really, you know, when we talk about Advent, it can often bring up, you know, like sentimentality or maybe it's just a difficult season for you. It's a season of gift giving and spending time with family. But we don't often talk about Christmas time as like a missional season and, and really an example of like the, the life that we are intended to live on mission to our neighbors who don't know Christ. And, and so if this sounds a little bit like, I don't know if that's a Christmas message, man. I promise it is, okay? So just hang in there with me. Um, Christ reveals the Father to the world, and as he does such, we are invited to reveal Christ to the world through our, our actions as a church, through our words. And so we're to be present in the world, bringing the love and the power of Jesus to the people around us, and making the way straight for the Spirit to encounter people. Because that's what this is about when we talk about living on mission. Josh just alluded to it in the announcements. He said we're a family on a mission. When we're talking about living on mission, we want to be clear about what we mean by that. We believe, because of what the Bible says, that the Spirit of God draws people to Christ. That's his job. It's actually not your job. It's the job of the Spirit of God to draw people to Christ. But what we see in the life and ministry of Jesus and his followers is that they make the way straight. They clear the path. They make space. They're hospitable. They say the right words. They, they create the right atmosphere for the Spirit to draw people to Christ. And so when we say that we're a family on a mission, when we say we want to be a missional community, our mission is to make the way straight for the Spirit to encounter people and, and really woo them to, to the beauty of Jesus. And, and so that's hopefully what we're doing here in this room. That's hopefully what we're doing with our outreaches. That's what we're doing, you know, when we gather in our homes is we're making the way straight for the Spirit to encounter folks. So I want to turn our attention to the Scriptures um, specifically the prophet Micah. So the prophet Micah is really interesting. I don't know like, how much you all know about Micah, but Micah is a fascinating figure in the history of Israel. So Micah and the prophet Isaiah actually lived at the same time. So they would have known one another. There's not really any way to, um, you know, when you're reading your Bible and it's sort of in this order, like you don't see their stories overlap quite as much as they actually do, but they were contemporaries. They would have known each other. And when Micah was active as a prophet, Israel was in this period of time where they were they were unfaithful to God. They're worshiping idols. You know, they're they're not keeping the festivals. They're they're not certainly not you know keeping the law, reading the law, meditating on it, right? And so, Micah's prophetic writing um, contains pronouncements of judgment. Against Israel, but it also contains some of the most interesting foreshadowing of Christ, and so that's why we're talking about it today. We're going to connect Micah into our story. So the book of Micah contains several major movements that kind of work in cycles. So I think there are nine chapters in Micah. Someone with the Bible can correct me, but there I think there are nine chapters in Micah. In the first couple of chapters, what Micah is doing is he's he's pronouncing judgment against Israel. He's saying Look, you know, you've been unfaithful, you've worshiped idols, you've been far from God, you're not keeping his law. And so the Assyrians, this this other kingdom that was close to them, they're going to come in and they're going to attack Israel. But then at the end of this first movement, at the end of this first pronouncement of judgment, Micah devotes nearly a chapter to unpacking some of the promises of God for Israel because he's basically saying, look, this is not the end of the story you've been unfaithful. Yes. And that's a problem. Yes. But God is going to work through your unfaithfulness to redeem it. And then he does the same thing again. There's another cycle of, you know, he's, he's prophesying against Israel. He's saying, you've been unfaithful. You've worshipped idols, so on and so forth. It's the same thing. And then there's a beautiful promise that comes at the end of that. And then the cycle kind of comes to a climax in chapter 5. And Micah Prophesized the the birth of Christ in chapter five, so we're going to read a little bit from there, uh, Micah chapter five verses two to four. It says, "But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, there it is, who are one of the little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to rule in Israel, whose origin is from old, from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up." until the time when she who is in labor has brought forth, then the rest of his kindred shall return to the people of Israel. Now let's just pause there for a second. Isn't that cool? Because we just talked about Ephrathah, the ash heap. Rachel dies in childbirth. And so now Micah is prophesying that this place where Rachel died in childbirth will give birth to the one who's going to redeem the world. How good is that? And we miss that if we don't know that little bit of context, right? But, but now there's some language in there that we would ordinarily read and go, what, like, what does that mean? And now we know. Now we know what it means. So he goes on, and, and it says, And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall live secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be the one of peace. So he talks about a king in this in this prophecy who will not only redeem his people and judge the world justly, but who will also send his people on a mission to be a blessing to the nations. If you keep reading the rest of that chapter, which we're not going to take the time to do, he talks actually about how the work of this king, the out, the outcome of that, is that his people will be a blessing to the nations. So this prophecy is not just about Jesus. It's actually about you and I because we are the people of God. We're the ones who have chosen to follow Christ. And so because Micah prophesies that this king's people will be a blessing to the nations, what does that mean? That means that you and I and our families and the folks that we know who are are following Jesus, who have a life with God, we're meant to be a blessing to the nations. Now this, this takes things to a whole nother level because often at Christmas time we're thinking about things in terms of, you know, our own personal, individual, spirituality. And, you know, I'm I'm for that. I'm for having a healthy inner life with God. It's something I'm really passionate about. However, we must see in these prophecies about Jesus that there is there is a charge brought to the people who will follow him to be a blessing to the nations. And so that's why we do this, right? That's why we gather and we sing the songs and we put the red and green lights on the, on the this. And like, that's why we do that, is to be a blessing to the nations, right? And, and so this is the mission of Christ, that the people of God, the people who call Jesus Lord are meant to be a blessing to the nations and an extension of God's rule and reign in the earth by loving hospitality and faithful witness to our unbelieving neighbors. And so having said all that, what I want to do is I want to further kind of plug this into our story. So I want to turn to the one gospel that appears not to have an Advent story. So we're going to look at the gospel of Mark. And if you start to read the gospel of Mark, so we have the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Mark tells the story of the life of Jesus. But Mark is unique in that when you open to the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, there is no manger, there is no Mary and Joseph, there are no angels, there are no shepherds, there are no wise men. The Gospel of Mark begins like this. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he goes straight into a weird story about John the Baptist. That's how how Mark starts. And so at first glance, you would look at that and say, okay, well, Mark skipped Christmas. (laughs) Right? It sort of seems like that, doesn't it? But I want to tell you, he didn't skip Christmas. Mark, in this one sentence, actually makes one of the most powerful and profound statements about this Advent season that you'll read in the entire Bible and that means even more than you think that i mean right now so let me explain to our ears the beginning of the good news of jesus christ the son of god might sound like an obligatory like someone looked at what mark wrote and just said mark you didn't even like have an introduction you didn't like you just started into this weird story and and no one's going to understand what you're talking about and so mark said okay fine i'll put you know a sentence at the beginning but Mark is doing something provocative and inflammatory in his cultural context with this one sentence. By saying what he says here, Mark actually makes one of the most audacious challenges to the powers and principalities of his day. And to get an understanding of what I mean, I'm going to read to you an inscription from um, from a, a plaque. It's like a stone that's placed in the city of Caesar's birth just a few years, like within a few years of the birth of Christ. So the Romans would worship Caesar as a god. And this is the plaque in the birthplace of Caesar Augustus, who was Caesar when Jesus was born. It says, The birthday of the god Caesar Augustus, has been for the whole world the beginning of the good news. Therefore, let all recognize a new era beginning from his birth. In the first sentence of his gospel, Mark makes a mockery of the birth of Caesar. You always read that sentence and you just thought he was saying, hey, here we go, we're starting, right? But the truth is, Mark probably poured over this sentence for hours and days and months and thought, this will surely get me killed. (laughs) We laugh, but it's the truth. Mark makes a mockery of the powers and principalities in one sentence at the beginning of his gospel. He, he makes a direct challenge to Caesar, to the Senate, and to all the powers and principalities of the Roman Empire that crucified Christ. And he does it in the format of the imperial decrees that were common in the world that the church was taking shape in. So for you and I, this would be like if I wrote a book about Jesus and I opened with a parody of the precise language that the United States Congress uses when they draft the bill. That's actually what this is doing. And so Mark introduces the gospel by saying, this is the beginning of the real gospel. Jesus is king. You've been told that the gospel, the good news, is that Caesar is king. And I'm here to tell you that Jesus is king. And so instead of the gospel of the idols that you worship, the true son of God, not the counterfeit God, that you worship in political, uh, the political powers of the day, Jesus is king. And so Mark doesn't begin his gospel with this benign meditation on, you know, personal individual spirituality. He said Jesus has come to reign over this whole earth once and for all. And that has that bears meaning for you and for me and for our kids and for our friends, for our parents, for our neighbors who don't believe this is Mark coming right out and saying Jesus is king of the world. Jesus is king is the climax of the gospel. There's a really wonderful theologian. His name's Matthew Bates, and he's somebody that the Vineyard has been uh, kind of engaging on like a movement-wide level. And he's written a few excellent books. One of them is called The Gospel Precisely. And then ha- you're supposed to be writing this down. One of them's <laughs> called The Gospel Precisely. And then the other one uh, that's coming out this spring is called Why the Gospel. And Matthew Bates has been doing some awesome work just kind of about how we've actually gotten our gospel a little bit inside out. Because what we've been saying in the church in the West for the last 200 years or so is Jesus is Savior. So accept Jesus as Savior. And then all these benefits will come flowing into your life and also Jesus is king. But the gospel that the gospel writers bring us is Jesus is king. And if you bow down and acknowledge Jesus as king, he will save you, and all these other benefits will flow into your life. Do you hear the slight difference there? And, and so, you know, what I'm finding is that as I read the New Testament, And I talk with folks, this is the missing piece. That if Jesus is risen from the dead, if he is king, he gets to tell you what your body is for. He gets to tell you what your money does. He gets to tell you about relationships. Jesus actually gets to be the one that gets all of your allegiance over and above and instead of the powers of this age. He is king. He gets all of our allegiance, not parts. Not if he'll bow down to the idols with us. Not if he'll help us with our project. Not if, you know, this, that, and the other. And this is important for us to get because sometimes when we... When we come to faith in Jesus, when we start to have a life with God and we get to know him, we try to do like a little bargaining maneuver. Have any of you ever done this? I've done this. Just show of hands, I'm curious. God, if you this, I will that. Yeah? Have you heard that before? That actually doesn't work. In the in the Jesus is king model. In the Jesus is king model, we say, Jesus, I we'll worship you, and you get to do whatever you want. And the good news is that he is the only wise king. The good news is that when we make that kind of a commitment to him, um, he's careful with it. He's actually far more trustworthy than any other leader that you've ever followed. He's far more trustworthy than your parents He's far more trustworthy than your boss. He's far more trustworthy than any pastor you've ever followed or listened to, including me. Way, way, way more trustworthy than me. And so, does he get all of our loyalty and allegiance? Because if the answer is maybe it depends, if we put qualifiers on that, then we missed it. And so if we turn back and we look at the Christmas story, that's why the Advent message is so scandalous. That's why this story is foolish. Like I said at the beginning, the God of the universe comes to us in the form of a vulnerable human baby and asks for this kind of loyalty. Because you realize that Jesus was not less God in the the damp, dirty cave born to you know, born to refugees than he was on the cross or than he is enthroned at the right hand of the father right now. That's what we mean when we say Jesus is a hundred percent man and a hundred percent God is that Jesus is a hundred percent God all the way through. And he's a hundred percent human all the way through. And, and so this takes faith. This takes faith to, to worship the infant human Jesus. Like, those of you who have had children, I'm pretty fresh off the experience of caring for an infant. I'm not ready to worship the infant. Like, I'm being completely honest with you. Jesus, as the infant baby born in a cave, is the one worthy of our worship. And so as human beings, you know, we look for strong, powerful leaders with strong, powerful rhetoric. We want someone who will kill for us, not die for us. And that's why the people of Jesus' day expected a warrior king. And that's why they didn't see it when it happened. And in the age we're living in, if you and I aren't careful, we'll demand the same thing. We've got to be watchful. We've got to be watchful that we're as ready to worship the infant baby Jesus in the manger as we are to worship the powerful Jesus ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father. The Advent season should be a humbling season for our faith. It should be a humbling season for our theology. Because the leadership of the God we worship is most put on display in the way that he arrives to us. One of my favorite artists, John Mark McMillan, says it like this in a Christmas song that he wrote a few years back. He said, we thought you'd come with a crown of gold, a string of pearls, and a cashmere robe. We thought you'd clench an iron fist and rain like fire on politics. But without a sword, no armored guard, common born in mother's arms, the government now rests upon the shoulders of this baby son giving all of our affection and loyalty to Christ is where having a life with God begins. And as we press into being missional in 2023, as we use that language, we all need to be clear about what we mean by that. It's not a new kind of striving. It's not a, a stirring up you know, new activity and, and new ideas and new whatever from within us. It's having the ability to, to sit with this Jesus that we meet in the Advent season and trust that he is the only wise king. So if you're hearing me say these words and you don't currently have a life with God, I want to give you a, an opportunity to respond in a little bit. And so I want you to just be primed for that. But, you know, the Advent season, as we've been saying, it contains an invitation to be sent into the world with the mission and the love of Christ. And so I'm being convinced that, because of what's standing out to me in the scriptures, um, our conversations as a staff team, prophetic words that are coming to us from trusted friends, um, and really just the overall direction of the Vineyard Movement that we're a part of, uh, that the Lord is directing us to be missional in our thinking about how we do this. We're throwing that word around, but I want to just give a couple of specifics about what that might look like in the coming year. And the reason I want to do that is so that you and your families during this time of rest can actually take these things before the Lord and say, you know, God, are these things that you are asking of us? And, and really so that we can just be unified in one heart. When we come back into this place on January 8th and, and we sort of set sail for another year of, of ministry here at the Vineyard, um, I would love it if we are even more of one accord than like we've ever been before. Is that exciting to anybody else? Because, you know, when you look at the world, and we just did this series, Love One Another. Like, when you look at the world, people are not unified around anything other than conflict. And we have a powerful opportunity as a church in this city to be radically unified around loving our neighbors and creating hospitable spaces, making the way for the Holy Spirit to encounter people. Does that sound exciting to you all? I mean, because as I think about that, it fills me with hope. It fills me with hope because I see churches and, and, and I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not speaking poorly of any church in the city or any one church at all, you know, in general. But I think it's important that we're clear about why we exist. And we don't exist for entertainment purposes. And, and we don't exist for, you know, for making ourselves feel good for being part of this, or, you know, we exist because we're in full submission to Jesus as king of the universe, and we want to we want to do his project with him insofar as he will, you know, share it with us. So, I'm going to have the worship team come back up. Everybody stand with me. And uh, our ministry team, if you guys could make your way on over to the back. You know, if, you, if you're in this room or you're on the, uh, the stream and you heard this this morning and you have not made the decision to just make a wholesale commitment to, you know, Jesus, you are the king of my life. I trust you with every aspect of my life and you can run it better than I can. If you've never said that, if you've never prayed a prayer like that, um, we would love to invite you to do so. If you feel the Holy Spirit tugging on your heart right now as I speak and you think, you know what, that might be a good idea then uh, these folks would love to pray for you here in the back. So you can feel free to make your way back there now. And for the rest of us, we're going to conclude the message with communion today because communion makes our hearts tender to God and it makes our hearts tender to um, our confession together that he is the king. It's a reminder of his life, his death, his resurrection, the bread of life born in Bethlehem. And so we do this because of Jesus' compassion for us, because of God's compassion for the world that he came to save. And so the broken broken bread and the blood poured out are literal expressions of co-suffering love. And so to everyone who confesses Jesus is Lord, this table is open. And so eat the bread and remember the body of Christ broken in submission to sinful humanity so that we might come to the knowledge of him and drink remembering the blood of the new covenant shed that invites us into the forgiveness of God. So at any point, you know, during this first song, you can feel free to come up to the front and receive the elements. We've got three tables up here. Um, So just come and, you know, you can take it back to your seat. Take it as you will. Um, And then we'll be We'll be back up for some ministry prompts as we worship. But let's worship together.